Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. If you ever send money internationally, you know that it is an expensive and time-consuming process. The exchange rate you get from your bank can be shocking. So the next time you need to send money around the world, use TransferWise. They give you a great rate, your money goes much further, and you only pay one small upfront fee. It's easy to do, and you'll know exactly what you pay up front, and you get the real exchange rate with no markup. The two friends who founded TransferWise were immigrants from Estonia. They were sick of being ripped off when they sent their money home. They solved their problem by starting a company. That is the American way. Today, TransferWise lets millions of people and businesses all over the world send money internationally. See how much you can save at TransferWise.com. You can download the app for Android or iOS. Once again, that's TransferWise, W-I-S-E.com. Transfer like I need to transfer money to another country. Wise, like I'm smart, I'm listening to Recode, and I use TransferWise, TransferWise.com. Hey, Recode Media listeners, before we start this interview, and it's a fun one, I just want to tell you, you can see a version of this live, in person, if you live in New York or want to come to New York on October 24th at Joe's Pub. I'm going to talk with, drumroll please, Samantha B., who you know, Kevin Riley, who you may not know, but he programs entertainment, including Samantha V at Turner Networks. We're going to talk with both of them and maybe another great guest. It's all live. Easy to get to. It's at a very cool venue, Joe's Pub. You can learn more about it by going to recode.net. We're announcing this live on the internet, probably as we speak. There are not many tickets, so if you want to go join us, please do. Hurry up. See you soon. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media Podcast Studio sitting all by myself because uh, this doesn't happen very often. I think only once before. Our guest is not in studio with me. He's in Portland. It's Chuck Klosterman. Hey, Chuck. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I am well. You are the author of many things. Um, I'm looking at one of them right now. Is it Chuck Klosterman X or Chuck Klosterman 10? Can I go either way? Well, you know it is Chuck Klosterman 10, but... This is kind of proof of why I make a lot of bad decisions. <laughs> First of all, I overlooked the popularity, or I should say the lack of popularity, of Roman numerals in modern society. I mean, it, there's no reason somebody would see it on X and immediately assume that it was a 10 unless they're really consciously keeping tracks of how many books I've written before, but that's kind of an arrogant thing to assume. Or they spend do. a lot of time looking at Super Bowl logos. <laughs> exactly. The other thing that that really kind of proves I'm a moron is that this has happened before. You know, the fourth anth- book I put out was an anthology, and yeah, that no, was Chuck Klosterman 4, and that was IV. And many people would say it's Chuck Klosterman IV like it was a medical textbook oh. or something. I mean, so I – this is just something I keep doing, and I, I, I guess it's my hope to end up being like the band Chicago. <laughs> All right, I wouldn't. I think I would have got the IV part. I got X too. I just thought maybe we wanted it to go both ways. It's great. I bought it. I bought a signed copy. It's a physical book that I bought. It happens very rarely. The subtitle is "A Highly Specific, Defiantly Incomplete History of the Early Twenty First Century." Another way of putting it is stuff that you've written for other publications that you compiled in one place. It's great. I exactly. recommend it. You've written many other books. I'm not going to read the entire. What's it's not called an IMDb. I guess it's called a bibliography. Anyone who's listened this far knows that you are a writer and a commentator. Um, you write about music, sports. That's your, your sweet spot, right? That's been most of the work I have done, certainly, for other publications, yes. I watch games, I listen to music, and I daydream about the rest of reality. That's for the intro. I like that. I want to talk to you about a bunch of things, but I want to talk to you about, about your day job, writing for other publications primarily. You're, I think this is sort of a 
you are really good at it, um, and I think there are fewer and fewer people who do what you do, which is writing for places like GQ full time. Well, but I don't work for them full time. You don't work for them full time, but you, you've strung together a bunch of contracts, I assume, right? That's how you pay your rent. No. No? Okay. No, they, they're all one off things. Oh, really? I, there was a four year span where I was writing a column for Esquire. This would have been like 2004 to 2008. And that was a contract. I think it was, I think I, w- I was paid four grand per column, and they were yearly contracts. I had a contract with the New York Times magazine in like 2003, but contracts with the New York Times magazine are very strange. They're not like you're being paid consistently. It just changes the way you're described when they give your bio and you get paid a little bit more. I was, I guess, on contract with Grantland, although that was different because that seemed like a more immersive, like you're just an employee. And I was an employee at Spin, but for the most part, no, I, I do not. I haven't had a lot of long-term contracts. So rather than me describing how you make your living, you tell me how you make your living. It's it's for writing for other people, though, right? Oh well, I guess. I mean, you know, okay. So in the '90s, I was a newspaper reporter. Yeah. And then that's how I made my living. And then I was like, well, maybe I'm going to see if I can write this book in my spare time, the first book. And that came out in 2001. And then in 2002, I got hired by Spin. So I moved to New York. And at that point, it was I was still mostly like a working journalist who also wrote books. And then as the years kind of moved on, those flopped. So now I'm somebody who writes books and then occasionally does journalism. And I think it's, as I'm moving forward, it seems like books consume by far the majority of my time. So I guess that's how I... I make a living, you know. Also, I just I, – I, I mean, I guess technically I'm unemployed. <laughs> technically, yeah. By the way, what, what are you doing unemployed in Portland? What's, what's going on there? Um, well, like what is my day like or yeah, what what's am your, I Yeah, what, why, why are doing? you in Portland? There's, I used to spy you. I used to sort of sneak around you uh, in my old neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's yeah, like why never, didn't you ever come up and say hello to me if we were in the same Starbucks? That's because I see – although I seem incredibly confident on a microphone, I'm, I'm hesitant to walk up to people who I don't know who I admire and say, hey, Well, actually, like that's you. a good quality. That's yeah. a good quality for people to have. It generally um, doesn't work out well. Well, no. I think it's good that you're not the kind of person who's like, I'm going to try to network with every person I see. That's a good thing. Um, why am I here? Yeah. Well, let's see. My wife and I had an apartment – Near where you lived, okay, which was a great apartment when it was just the two of us. And then we had one kid, and then we had another kid. I'm familiar so now with this, this story. Apartment that, yeah. So now we're, you know, we're really kind of – there's not enough space. So then we have to choose between one of two things. We either have to move further out in Brooklyn and pay a ton of money for a house that might not even seem that great anywhere else in America. That's the Peter Kopp or, method. Yeah. <laughs> or we could move to Portland where my wife is from. Her parents are still here. Her sister is here. Um, kind of what I do doesn't really matter where I'm at. So it was it was really like a family-based move entirely. I mean, both my wife and I were not jacked about leaving New York. We loved it there. That's absolutely my favorite place to live ever. I still kind of miss it. It hasn't been that long, I guess, I've been away. But uh, we kind of begrudgingly did this. And there are some huge upsides to being here too. So it's, I, I think it really was probably the smart move, but you know. I assume you've been I'm, to Portland uh, before interviewing, actually, isn't, isn't, wasn't Malcolmus in Portland? 
he was there. I guess I've toured through here, and then because my wife is from here, we would come back here. So you know days. it. So I'm I'd curious. Prob- I'd probably been here twelve times before I moved. Here. Okay. I don't. I mean, all I know is that lots of people I know want to live there, but don't live there. Um, well, I think that you know there are, especially for people in Brooklyn, I think that they look at a lot of other cities and be like, well, what would be sort of uh, like a, a a realistic analogy? And there's certain cities that always come up. Portland is one. Austin is one. Yeah. Um, Minneapolis sometimes. Um, those are all the cities we talked about moving to, I guess. Yeah, and I grew up. Oh, I didn't grow up. I grew up outside Minneapolis, so I know that it's actually not like Brooklyn at all. So. I know, but it's there's something about the the I don't know culture is maybe the wrong word to use, but it seems whenever people from New York go to Minneapolis, they really do like it. Where out of Minneapolis are you from? Uh, Edina, Minneapolis. Oh, Edina, now that's Edina. the wealthiest suburb. So we're well, very we used to be. Growing. No, no, I grew up in the lower class part. We only had a one car garage. <laughs> we did not have. A I remote fa- in fact, isn't there like a cliche? Don't they call people from Edina cake eaters? It, was that? Yep. That? Yep. And yeah, the uh, the school was. mascot is the hornet, but it should be the wasp. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, actually, the, the other connection I always had with you was in purely in my own mind. You had a part in one of your books, uh, Killing Yourself to Live, about going to find Bobby Stinson's apartment, mm-hmm. former replacements member, and finding him. And it was near the Bryant Lake Bowl. And that's where I lived for a period of time. So I remember thinking, oh. I, I, were you living in that apartment? Like, no, no, nearby. Oh. And, and, and I, you know, the, the guy who was sticking his hand out, smoking the cigarette. I, yeah, I, yeah. I could imagine who that is. At least an archetype of that kind of person <laughs> who would stick their hand out while smoking a cigarette and then not answer the door. So I always felt that connection. I'm rambling a little bit now. This is why I think it's easier in person, but but I appreciate the phone call. I want to ask about how you do your job in 2017. You call it book writing. I think of it as magazine writing. I guess it's because I've read a anthology of your magazine writing. Has it changed significantly? Is it the, the way you actually do the work changed significantly over the last 10 years or so? Either because of your success or because of technology or both? I mean, like, like technically the way the stories are done, I would say that's almost identical. That's actually the one aspect that I don't think has changed at all. Yeah. Everything around it has changed entirely. But uh, the way that I would do a feature, for example, is kind of the way I've always done them. I mean, the way I was doing them in 1994. Um, and I, there's nothing sort of unique or or rarefied about the way I do this. I mean, okay, actually, there's one thing that has changed. There's one thing that is different, which is that when I was younger, like I think many people who uh, you know do this kind of work is, they're sort of trained or told or convinced or persuaded that the idea when you interview someone is to just make it be a conversation. Forget that you're recording it. You know, convince the person that you're just talking get so comfortable with them that uh it's just two people you know sitting in a bar chatting and and that this is the way sort of to you know get an authentic realistic uh profile but you know i found that that just really never happens uh, i mean particularly since i went through a period where i got interviewed a lot and i realized how fake that was and in a way how annoying it is to to be with someone who's trying to create the illusion that you're just comfortably chatting and that this is not recorded and that there isn't going to be some product at the end. So now when I interview people, particularly if they're very famous, you can't really do this with you're just kind of an average person. But if somebody is like mega famous, if they're Kobe Bryant or whatever, Taylor Swift, I will just say, hey, like at the beginning, look, like I know the only reason you're here is to 
promote some kind of product, that product may be yourself, but it's something that, that you are here to sort of sell or produce. And the only reason I'm able to ask you these questions is because I'm a reporter and I can ask you questions now that I probably wouldn't feel comfortable asking you if we were friends. So I'm not going to pretend that we are and I'm not going to create some fake thing where we're going to have a relationship beyond this conversation. I'm just going to ask you the things I want to know about and I hope that you respect the fact that I'm just being straight with you. And I find that that works much better. So you, you would dispense with like small talk about Portland then? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And when and when you say that to a Taylor Swift or Kobe Bryant, and it goes well, and and, and you've got two profiles of them, and there are great Q and A's in there, in the book, do you think they're responding to the the honesty of that approach, the fact that it's novel, or or both? I don't know. I think sometimes um, they're slightly surprised, but I think more often they're just like good. This is not going to be something where where they have to pretend for 20 minutes too that you know that we're just having this this kind of attempt to I mean I really keep using the word illusion but it kind of is that somehow there's something natural about two people who've never met before with a tape recorder in between right. them and one person is asking probing questions about their life that, that you know I mean I'm always you know it's it's interesting to me like when I hear about like Susan Orleans or whatever she she'll spend a month with somebody right. you know um I've never done anything like that I don't think I ever would I certainly would never allow someone to spend a month with me if they were writing a story on me I would think that would be awful to have just someone come into your life for a month so I mean I I actually I guess do these magazine profiles probably a little closer to the way newspaper profiles worked, where there was no expectation that you were going to have, you know, four days with the person or an entire weekend where you'd go on their boat with them or whatever. I, I don't really uh, – I mean, I don't know. It, it makes the story easier to write if you do that stuff. Like, you know, uh, I, I, I very much recall, uh, you know, because people are aware of this. Like I was doing a story on the release of the first Audio Slave record. And I was interviewing Tom Morello in Los Angeles. And it spin, it was always important. We always had to kind of open with some scene. Um, so we went to this arcade. They, they set it up so we'd go to this arcade together. And we were walking into the arcade. And, like, he literally looked at me and said, like, so is this the part where you talk about how you and me are in an arcade together? Right. And I'm like, yes, it is. This is what we're doing right now. Um, we, we are pretending that somehow you and I ran into each other on the street and decided to – you know, play Rampage. I was, I was going to ask um, about that because people still do this, but it, it seems like you see less of them. I was just reading one where they're interviewing Larry David's daughter and the conceit was they were going to ride the subway because she doesn't like to ride the subway because she's neurotic. And they rode the subway to Queens and back. But I, I was struck the, by the fact that you see many fewer of those now where someone goes on a date or goes golfing or goes yeah, to the I, I I do think that something has changed about the awareness of the consumer and the fact that also the consumer of this is used to reading things on the internet that are so much shorter and that they're used to reading vertically as opposed to horizontally that if you start a story with sort of a, a you know a colorful interesting description okay like in this Taylor Swift story I did it starts with me and her in her car and she gets a phone call from Justin Timberlake right. but that's not a like a constructed scene like I thought we were just going to her house. I assume that the car ride – like I'm taking notes because the tape recorder is not on. I think that's one thing. It's another thing if we would have said, boy, it would be interesting to spend time with Taylor Swift like in a hot air balloon. 
So then me and her are in a hot air balloon and she gets a, that would just, that seems so dumb to me now. Um, now granted the thing about a lot of profile writing, especially celebrity profiling is there is kind of a formula to this. There's a certain expectation the publication has of what the story is going to be like. So sometimes you still have to kind of work within that construct, but I hope that it's never as, you know, the, the, the profiles that always drive me crazy. And I mean, I've done this too. It's a profile that begins with the subject's first name. Oh, that's, you know, that's like a very men's Pete, magazine style one. Yeah, like, like an know, Esquire like GQ. Peter Kafka overlooks the menu. Is, like, <laughs> I, I hate that. You know, I think I, I just, I will do anything to avoid it. And sometimes you'll turn something in and, and the editor will try to move it in that direction. And you got to find some way. I think it even just sounds better to just immediately use a pronoun instead of the person's name. Mm-hmm. Because certainly the person reading this story knows who it's about. And if, if, I, if the story starts with she... And Taylor Swift is pictured next to that story. No one's going to be like, "Who was that? Who's he talking about?" How you much? Know? How much agency uh, do you have over the construct of the piece? Like, is it the publicist who says Taylor Swift wants to meet you, but she wants to do it in a hot air balloon, or does the editor say this is how I want to do it? Do you have the ability to say, "No, I don't want to do it that way"? What usually happens is, you know, the editor from the place calls you and says, "We want, you know, would you be interested in doing a profile on Person X?" And if I'm interested in person X, I say yes, sure. It doesn't really matter what you know. That's just that's the whole thing now. If if I'm like authentically, because I can't, I don't want to fake interest in people. It just doesn't. I hate you. End up hating the entire experience, especially the writing and all that stuff. So I got to be legitimately interested that I actually have questions. So they say, "Are you interested in person X?" And I'm like, "Yes, sure." And then they go, "Okay, it'll probably happen the end of September or whatever. They'll give you kind of a rough date, and then." At least in the last five or ten years, immediately the conversation is, we're not going to get much time with them. They've said we're not going to get much time with them. So it's been set them. up. They've, but, set it, they've set it up with the interview subject, through their handlers, through their manager, PR person. Yeah, there's some – like there's this whole – there's this whole ish – like industry of wrangling, like, right. like I, which I never – because at a newspaper, you had to do all that yourself. Like if you wanted to interview – Rob Zombie. You had to like call White Zombie's publicist and get the whole thing. You know, you did it yourself. Now it's almost, I, I guess the analogy is almost like being parachuted in or dropped in. Right. But it's that, like that apparatus still exists in, in glossy magazine land. There's still people doing that stuff. Yeah. I mean, particularly if the expectation is that you're going to have, you're going to sit down with the person. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I think in, you can tell in a lot of like online journalism that, that, these contacts you can just see as you read sort of the, the, the what people say and all this and the, and the way it's structured that this was done um, sort of, you know, through texting or Twitter or email or something like that. But if the idea is that you're going to sit with the person, they are going to kind of create this scenario. And some writers really hate the idea if it's just going to be dinner or it's just going to be them in the hotel room because they're like, what am I going to write about? I I know I never feel that way. I almost prefer that because my thinking is always if someone reads something I write and the thing they come away talking about is the way the story is written, that means it didn't work. Like they should come away talking specifically about something the subject said that changed the way they now perceive them. That's why like in this, you know, this book of this anthology, there's that Tom Brady uh, profile that's a failed profile 
Like I put it in there because I don't know. I just did. Um, but I know from my perspective that did not work because if anyone's talking about that profile, all they're discussing is that there was no new information. You tried made. to interview Tom Brady who basically did not want to be interviewed or certainly didn't want to be asked about deflating balls. Yes, and that was that's what we thought I thought that was specifically why it was happening. So then there was a strange kind of collision between someone asking one question over and over again and the other person basically being like that's the one question I'm not going to answer at all. But you kept it in. It's, it's still interesting. Well, what had happened was, you know, they had he was man of the year, so he was going to be on the magazine regardless. So then it was once we realized there wasn't going to be like a, a normal profile, then it was like, well, I'll just write an essay about him. But then I thought, well, if I'm writing an essay about him, I should include something that, you know, isn't just sort of what I think or whatever. So I just took the part of the interview that didn't work and put it in the middle of the essay because in an essay, even a failed interview is something, you know, it's not a failed interview in a profile is a problem, but a failed interview in an essay can be interesting. Yeah, I liked it. I have more interview questions for you during this interview, but I need to stop for a second, about 30 seconds, so we can we can sell some socks, I think. Socks are awesome. Can you hang on? Sure. We'll be back here with Jeff Klosterman. Today's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing them right now. I cannot ask Chuck Klosterman to look at them because he's he's not even online right now, but he's in another state, so I won't ask him to look at them. But they're super comfortable. They are great with a nice blue pattern. Um, I smell great. Chuck can't attest to that either because they're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber, eliminates odor. I smell great and I look great. They're easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com, get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. If you don't like them, hang on to them. Mac Weldon will send you your money back. But if you do want to buy them, go to MacWeldon.com, you get 20% off your order. That's MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. Back here with Chuck Klosterman. I'm Peter Kafka. You know that because you're listening to a podcast with the two of us. We were talking about the, the techniques of interviewing, how it's changing, how it's not changing. I want to ask you about profile writing as well. There was something you mentioned at the beginning of the introduction of your Taylor Swift profile. Actually, I don't know if it was Taylor Swift. It was one of them. Um, you talked about not describing the way that, that women, I think in particular, look or how they dress because you don't want to get blowback. You say, part of the reason it's so much easier to write about old white guys, nobody gives a shit how you describe them. I got to say, I, I understood what you meant, and I was a little surprised that you you put that in there because it seems like even even saying that is the kind of thing that could raise someone's ire at this point. I suppose it could, but, you know, it it's not that you don't – it's not that the blowback is the pro- – I mean, I guess it depends how you define blowback. But the thing is, it will change the way – the story is received particularly by people who don't actually read the story. Like they'll just sort of isolate one part of the story. And then the assumption will be that this is what the story must be about because it was all boiled down into this sort of one little um, anecdote. And it's just not worth it to sort of risk having the entire story be hijacked by something that though – does seem like a normal part. So of your worry writing. is that if you wrote that yeah. Taylor Swift was wearing a short skirt or a long skirt or a tight fitting thing or a loose fitting thing, that would get removed out of context and all the attention would be placed on on that. Or 
however that situation might get. Well, I don't even remove it out of context. It would just be something that somebody would focus on. Okay, so they would they would just be somebody would find that problematic that I descri- that I described how she looked or whatever. You know, and it doesn't matter if it was uh, you know complimentary or insulting necessarily. It would seem as though I wasn't taking her seriously as a musical artist, and the idea is that I do. Okay, that's sort of why I'm like I'm writing about her is because. I do think she's like a meaningful, significant artist. So it's not worth the risk of having the story then get shifted by other people who perhaps just are, you know, that they sort of perceive themselves as somebody who's sort of a watchdog for certain signifiers or certain elements of the culture and that they're that their job is to sort of, you know, be on the wall for this. And if your story then gets moved into that silo, that's kind of all it's going to be remembered for. And it's, you know, it's it's not a meaningful enough detail to sort of have to take that risk, I think, because I, the, the ultimate idea is that you want people to read your work and to come away with either um, an idea that they didn't have before or to take an idea that 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 was sort of pre-existing in the culture and sort of shifted or or. Or, or morph it into something that, that illustrates its complexity or whatever. What you don't want is somebody to have a story just become a sort of a political dispute that has no uh, connection with what you're actively trying to do. Like it becomes someone else's politics. Sort of. Did that happen to one of the pieces you wrote did, did, or did you watch it happen to other people and say, oh, I don't, I don't want to go there. I'm going to shift lanes here. Both, I'm sure. Uh-huh. I'm sure that has happened. Yes, I know. I mean, I, it, it, I've seen it happen to other people, but I think it's happened to me too. I'm sure it has. Yeah. So it's so it's something that you're willing to put up with, willing to sort of accept in terms of how you're going to report and write, but something that still irks you enough that you want to call it out, you know, quietly or, or briefly in a collection of essays. What it was, you know, you, you got it when you put together an anthology like this. You got to read through all your old features. You yeah. Know? And I did it as I was rereading that. I did notice it's like you know I never describe what she looks like, but I describe what Jimmy Page looks like. Uh, you know, it's like he's wearing black and has a ponytail or whatever. You know, I describe what Eddie Van Halen looks like. I I sort of always do that. That's just I I I, I mean here again, particularly again writing for newspapers when. The art was a less meaningful thing when, when you know the whole thing wasn't necessarily built around a photograph of the person, or the person might be significantly less famous, so that people, you know, I guess you could, I mean, because you could make the argument, it's like, why are you describing what Taylor Swift looks like, or how you know people know how she appears? Um, but it, to me, that's just like that's part of expository writing, describing what the person looks like. But you know, it's a it's a kind of a touchier thing now. It's a more dangerous thing, but. When you on balance, you know, is it something that like is so important to the story that like, you know, it must be in here. The truth. It's not like that. You know, if it's going to cause people to consume the story differently, it's probably not worth the trade off. Do you think that sort of perception of how your work is being received either by your audience or by people who aren't reading it but are reading about it? Do you think that's a new concept? That, that if, you know, 20 years ago when you were starting, you sort of been, would have been writing into a void. You would have gotten next to no feedback and you would have just gone on and written more stories and someone in New York would have kept hiring you. So you would have known you were doing well there. But beyond that, you wouldn't have had any other feedback with your audience. That, you know, I said before how the kind of the way the story is done has changed the least amount. The thing you just described 
is what has changed the most. I mean, you know, it's and I think that it's always hard talking about these things because you you know, you're almost I'm gonna say things that will make me sound antiquated or whatever, but it I think there's a lot of people roughly my age, I'm forty five, you know, who are in media who probably feel this way. Part of the reason I became a writer is because it was this completely controlled reality where I could do this thing by myself, sort of. Where you know I would you'd go out and you'd, you'd you'd do the interviews and stuff, but then you're back by yourself transcribing and then writing, and then when the story is done and you send it off, that's the end. Now that's the middle. <laughs> now it's like when the story is published, it's the middle of the process very often, because the consumer th- feels differently now. Like media is not a one way relationship it's this two-way relationship where many people feel the reason they're consuming media is to respond to it that it's not for the content it's so that they can sort of use that content to have their response like their kind of reader response or whatever um and that's it's not something to even criticize it's just how it is now like that is the expectation right and some people Especially the people that who I think read the stuff that I write, who are in my world, media slash technology, either love it or say they love it. They love interactivity. They wish there was more way to reach their readers or reach their fans. They love that interaction. You often don't hear from people like you, I think in partly because they don't want to say it out loud and say, I, I don't want to participate in that world or I want to participate less in that world. Well, you know, it, things change. Okay. My first book comes out. Part of the reason that I was able to go – I didn't, you know, had never been to New York, was living in Akron, Ohio, but suddenly was able to move into this world was because I did something that in retrospect seems completely out of character for me. Like my home phone number is in the foreword to that book. That's for Rock City? Yes. If you want to talk, if you want to call me, I was like, here's my number. And it was my home phone number. And I kind of thought at the time, well, people will think it's funny I did that, but they won't actually call. But many people did. I got many phone calls. I ended up being able to do the first like event I ever did in New York was with David Byrne and Lydia Davis because David Byrne called me from the Denver airport <laughs> because my number was in this book. So now sometimes people will say to me, well, why don't you respond to people on Twitter or whatever? Well, you know, people tweet at you. Why don't you? That's the, you know, that's yeah. the whole idea of it. Like what, you know, um, and, you know, I do. I do book readings and I love getting questions from the audience. I love – that's my favorite part is like when there's questions from the audience and I, we can just kind of you – know, I can respond sort of off the cuff. But for some reason, I don't feel that way about social media. And I guess I have theories as to why I feel that way, but I'm not certain if, if – Did, it tur- did, did you ways. always feel that way or did it turn? You were into social media and then you decided at one point enough. See, I think I – when I first got involved with Twitter, it was – seemed different than it is now. Yeah, I agree. Where there was less of that. And, you know, it went, at first when you were on – like this was like 2008 I think or 2009 whenever I first got into it, maybe 2009 or 2010. It was almost as though the people on Twitter were so happy to see other people on Twitter. Yep. It was this weird kind of – I don't know, kind of strange uh, – Hey, we're welcome. all friends here. To, You're here. Yeah. Yeah. And – did I ever respond to – I mean I, I will occasionally respond to people who, who tweet at me if I think they have an interesting question or if they're you – know, or, or I – they seem like a particularly sincere person who just wants to know something. 
I guess you know what I think my, it might be the answer to this is the fact that it so quickly went from something that was kind of this interesting ancillary medium, this, this new kind of – to something that has become straight up now obligation and expectation that if you produce books or you write stories that you are going to promote these things in this real aggressive way and that that, that seemed that just was not – even in 2001, that was just not part of this at all. Like when Fugger Rock City came out, the idea for my, for me promoting it was like they would say, this, you know, alternative weekly in Omaha wants to talk to you. Do you want to do it? Like that's not how it is now. I mean, I do think it's interesting because the relationship between how popular someone is on Twitter really has no relationship to say how many books they sell or any of that, you know. But it's the closest the publishing industry and the media industry has to an analogous kind of metric, you know? Yeah, and it's it's a super flawed metric. And I also noticed that a lot of people who were really interesting on Twitter back in 2008 or 2009 have stopped. Um, so whenever I use Twitter, not whenever, but often when I use Twitter, I think, wait a minute, so-and-so used to be on here, but now they're not. What, what do they know that I don't? You know, I mean, he, I don't know. Like, here's something I was thinking about recently. Like, okay, how many people do you follow on Twitter? Um, I don't roughly, know. I'm sure it's roughly. thousands, but I'm sure there's only a portion of them are actually tweeting regularly. Yeah. Okay. So let's say that Twitter went from being a free medium to a pay medium and it cost $1 a year to follow a person. So if you followed, you know, 850 people, you had to pay $850 a year. How many people do you think you would follow if it was $1 a person for 12 months of content? I don't know. A hundred? Seems like a good number. Even that you think you'd high. still follow 100? Like, yeah, I think probably professionally. I mean, I'm on a Twitter diet right now, so I'm, try, I'm trying to cut down. And one of the things I figured out is you actually don't need to look at Twitter at all to follow what's going on on Twitter. Like, there's no re- you don't need to follow President Trump to learn what President Trump tweeted because everyone That's else true. will tell you. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I don't – I think the, the, the notion – and I feel this way about the internet in general. Like, the idea that the internet's going to open – the world and let you find cool niches and cool things and or like-minded people or people you wouldn't have encountered otherwise that seems to to get drowned out by the reality of both modern internet and modern twitter where it's louder and louder and scale and scale and so the, the interesting stuff gets pushed farther to the margins i mean i guess the things that you said did happen though that this first description kind of has occurred but it's just a, it's a strange thing because it seems so important now not necessarily to the average person, but to the person whose livelihood is built around media. You had another riff about social media in there that I wanted to ask you about where you talked about um, sort of the public bereavement when a celebrity died. And there was that I – mean, it's still happening obviously, but that, that string where David Bowie died and Prince died and whoever else died and everyone would take to Facebook or Twitter to explain what it meant to them. And basically you say in short, it doesn't do it for me. It doesn't make any sense. Sometimes a celebrity will die. It doesn't even seem like a death. It seems like an auction. Everyone starts to sort of one-up themselves. You, you can see the positive part of that, right? That for most people who aren't famous, right, this is still just a way to sort of beat their chest and, and gain some kind of validation. They're validated. As, what, what, what is the validation? You get to say, I have, a, I have a thought. I have a feeling. This is important to me. By the way, everyone else is doing it, and I want to join that group of people doing it. Well, sure. It's not, I, I, I think I say in the paragraph after this. It's not bad. It's just weird to yeah. me. It just it it feels strange to me that that there is a such a performative nature to 
reactions to celebrity death. And it's interesting to see people, you know, pick and choose which celebrity deaths they want to publicly mourn. And I know this sounds cynical, but in a way it does seem like a kind of branding. Yeah, I was thinking like wearing a band's T-shirt, right? A little bit. A little bit, although um, it's different because wearing a band's T-shirt or whatever would be like, well – you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pay eighteen dollars to buy this shirt. I was at the show, or it was in the record store, and like the band is selling this, and I'm supporting this or whatever. And I, 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 the aesthetics of this group and the fonts they use, you know, I like. I feel like when somebody dies, and you know, some some obscure jazz musician, and you decide that you're going to be the person who expresses sadness over this death partially because you want people to know you're the kind of person who cares about obscure jazz artists. Yeah. I don't know. That seems odd to me. I mean, it's, it makes sense. It's not, and you know, I think at first I, I did stuff like this. I remember one time Orlando Woolridge died. He had this guy who played basketball. He was number zero. He'd played for the Nuggets for a while, played for the Bulls for a while. He had so he went to Notre Dame. He sort of had this checkered cocaine past. He was always kind of perceived as a selfish player, but I found him uh, I, I kind of – so like he died and I expressed, oh, you know, Orlando Woolwich died. I'll, you know, I, and I think I, what I was convincing myself was like, well – He's somebody who should be remembered. Like this is the it's you know he's not yeah. Michael Jordan, but he's somebody worth remembering. But then part of me, as I thought about it, I was like, well, why did I pick him? If if it's really that someone deserves to be remembered, well, everybody does. Everyone deserves to be remembered. I should be doing nothing all day except noting the deaths of various unfamous and famous people. But I picked this guy, and it did make me question, you know. I'm sure a lot of people have this feeling. It's like you question your motives for something. What are what was my unconscious reason for doing this? I made up this conscious rationale, but why did I really do it? You and I are about about the same age, um, and I think we shared similar traits at one point, which is at some point we identified ourselves because of the music and other culture that we we like to consume, and we were part of a minority of people who like to do that. And a lot of people just listen to whatever, or watch whatever, and didn't affect them. Do you think that's gone away in 2017 or has that been replaced with something else where instead of identifying yourself as someone who likes the Minutemen or Kiss or whoever it is, you now like – I don't know what the thing would be. Or do you think that that's still – that identification with a cultural product is still around? Oh, it has definitely receded from the culture and I think that different sort of avenues within the internet have replaced it. I mean partially because – if you you know prior to the kind of the collapse of the music industry post Napster, if you were going to buy you know you didn't have unlimited money if you were a young person. So if you were going to buy a record, that might be the only record that you were going to get that month or certainly that week. You know, um, and if you know you buy a Cure album and you like it, you're probably going to look for records that are similar to the Cure, or artists that seem similar to the Cure, and all of a sudden you're kind of a halfway goth. That you have all this stuff and and the ideas in that music are ideas you start to adopt and Plus you find you've invested, other people. And you've invested time in, in physically getting yes. the stuff. And you're finding other people who also have made the sort of left turn decision to buy this record when they could have bought 
you know, a Michael Jackson record or whatever, or Duran Duran record or Van Halen. They bought this instead. And that was sort of the creation of this little subculture. But now, you know, we've moved back to the idea of singles being the dominant form of kind of music consumption. And the value of music is much less. Um, you know, I even feel that, you know, I just like I'm on Spotify. So I'm paying the monthly amount for Spotify and listening to this huge spectrum of music that I could have never afforded or would have never done if I had to consume these. I mean, you know, I'm kind of moving backwards through time now. I'm, I, you know, I'm trying to go through all of the music in the 70s and the 60s that I read about but never really listened to. Well, right. I couldn't go back and. And you know, be like, well, I'm going to buy every Love album or whatever. Just does, does that also allow you to go back and listen to music that you actively didn't listen to because you thought it was bad or you thought it was culturally inferior? I was thinking of this. I was reading a – it was a Ringer appreciation for one of the Def Leppard albums, not not Pyromania, the one I guess I came Hysteria. He, yeah, the guy yeah. was saying that Hysteria – which is a surprising argument because yeah. like, Hysteria is easily the fourth best Def Leppard <laughs> record. But anyway. So so I, I have very limited Def Leppard experience except for that they were a huge band. But I, I, but I also knew they weren't cool. Right, and so the idea that this was they were going to make an argument for sort of a, a mid period Def Leppard album being awesome almost got me to go back and listen to it, and it wasn't like I spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I did think, you know what, I bet I'm going to go listen to this, and it's still not going to be great, and it wasn't just a cultural bias I had, but then I, I spent time going back and forth and wondering if I'm missing stuff because I was sequestered somewhere and where I might be, I might be opened up to a lot of stuff now that I have it all at my fingertips. Yeah, well, and you know. When I go back and listen to almost anything that still has some semblance of meaning today, that you know, whether it's Def Leppard Hysteria or it's Trout Mask Replica, anything, any record from the past that for whatever reason still gets brought up in conversation by people, two generations or three generations later, some people are still like, this is worth listening to, and it's now detached from that secondary meaning of whether or not it's cool right. or if this somehow applies to a person like me, I find most of it uh, good or at least interesting. Like I, I, so you strip away the, con- the that, context and, and you can enjoy it. Well, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and um, uh, there was so much me. You know, I would – when I went to college, I bought R.E.M.'s eponymous album. And I was so embarrassed that I had bought it that I wouldn't put it with my other CDs. <laughs> I hid it because I would just I, – I, I was I – was, I just thought to my – I had this association of what the kind of person who was into R.E.M. was like um, and what it meant to be into R.E.M. Well, of course, now R.E.M. has become one of my favorite bands or whatever. It's like I, I think that this idea that uh, it seems strange to me to be into music for its coolness – Outside of high school, like that, that seems like that's the only time when some when when, you know, you're a young person and you're using art basically to create a personality because you don't have a real personality yet. Yeah, it so lasted longer for art, me. Yeah. High school, college. I think, and then well, a I think it takes longer for most people. It's yeah. just I, you know, I think for me too. I mean, obviously, I was in college when this REM thing happened. You know, it probably took me till the end of college to sort of change the way I viewed, uh, like the meaning and significance of pop music. We're going to take a super quick break, and then I want to come back and talk about Nazis. How's that sound? Sure. Awesome. All right. This podcast is brought to you by The Art of Shaving. 
You've seen the art of shaving. They have these stores all over the world. You can go in in person. They will give you an old-fashioned shave with a razor. It feels great. You should do it. In the meantime, the art of shaving can help you at home because they've got your total routine covered. Shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. They've got award-winning products that are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. Of course you want to put that stuff on your body. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service, which is a fancy way of saying they will send this stuff to your house so you get to save money and you never have to worry about running out. My listeners will get 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code MEDIA when they go to theartofshaving.com and they use my special promo code MEDIA. Gets you 15% off your first order and free shipping. Go to theartofshaving.com for the special offer or go to one of those stores I was telling you about. Talk to them in person. They will set you up. Thank you, Art of Shaving. Here's my friend and boss, Kara Swisher, with a word from Amazon Web Services. Today's show is brought to you by Amazon Web Services. Developers love Docker containers because they give applications portability and consistency all the way from your laptop into production. Amazon EC2 container service from Amazon Web Services makes it easy to run Docker apps in the cloud. Deploying, operating, and scaling your infrastructure happens automatically with Amazon EC2 container service. Best of all, you only pay for the AWS compute and storage resources you use. With Amazon EC2 Container Service, you can focus on building apps, not managing your container infrastructure. Learn more at ecs.aws. Thanks, Kara. We're back here with Chuck Klosterman. As promised, we're going to talk about Nazis. Because here's the thought I was trying to connect. We were talking a little bit about the public, the performative, I love that word, uh, nature of saying, I feel bad that David Bowie died. I was thinking about that this weekend when I was watching the Charlottesville stuff on Saturday when the event was happening and on Sunday when Donald Trump refused to condemn it. Every single person in my Twitter feed was saying a variant of the same thing. This is terrible. Donald Trump is terrible. This is terrible. And I was torn between thinking, boy, I really don't need anyone else to come out and say that they're, they're against Nazis or against the Klan or they think Donald Trump's a terrible person because everyone I know is thinking the same way. And I thought, actually, for a time like this, this is actually a good outlet for people to be able to say, I, I'm powerless, but I want to sort of say something. And if it's literally the same thing as everyone else, that's fine. Do you see the the, the virtue in that or, or, or virtues are wrong? Oh, as a, the as upside a therapeutic thing? Yeah. Sure. I mean, you know, it it is interesting, though, how <laughs> it's like uh, all realities are happening at the same time. Right. Okay. So I think it was it – was, Either this morning or tonight. This is Monday. We should know. I don't know when this is running. But this Couple is like days Monday right, yeah. after. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So, um, so I see. Read somebody. You know, some people on Twitter are, are kind of making an argument that's like, okay, so if you're a Republican who's acting like you're all upset now that Trump refused to say Nazis are bad or whatever, you know, uh, don't pretend this is new. Since 1980, basically, the GOP has courted. Uh, racial politics and has uh, essentially kind of been building toward this problem, you know, since about 1980, this is, this Lee has been Atwater. part of their strategy. Yes. Yeah. You know? Yep. Okay. And then like a couple tweets later, I started seeing people who were reprinting the statement Ronald Reagan made after uh, he had gotten support from the Ku Klux Klan. And he was like, the KKK is repugnant. There's no place for this in America. You know, this is like, you know, now both people are essentially attacking Trump. You have the one person who's saying, you know, uh, this terrible thing that's happened. It's been happening since 1980. Then there's somebody else saying, like, Trump is awful. Look at he's not like Reagan. 
You know, it's like, he, you know, but it's this and they're they're coming at the same problem different. It made me think many things. One thing it made me think is when I watched Trump's speech this morning and it was a terrible speech, but I was like, why did he even make it? Do you think that there's going to be anybody who's going to hear this speech and go like, oh, I guess we were wrong. I guess he actually is. He's a very reasonable person. That didn't happen at all. I think it's literally so he can say, I said it. And now there's a certain group of people who can say, he he said it. Let's stop. Let's move on. It will be he's on the record for saying he doesn't support Nazis. But the real meaning, I mean, look at Reagan saying that he did not want any support from the KKK or, or any kind of racist organization. But how many people on the left perceive the Reagan administration as being sort of, um, you know, racially inclusive or that, or, you know, it, you know, it, it's, it's as if pretty much every idea that you want to exist now, you can sort of find other people who have who have said something that aligns with you. And you can just kind of keep promoting this idea that your personal view is somehow collective. Yeah, I mean, I, I see all of that, but still all in the same part of the ideological spectrum. And again, like the idea that there's a, a difference here in the spectrum, right? There's there's no one who's pro-Nazi, or mm-hmm. there technically are a handful of people, but but no one cares about well, them. Well, other Nazis, yeah. <laughs> there's not many of the people who are like, I'm not a Nazi, but I'm, I yeah, support this. Yeah, and, that's, uh, and that's also why I hate the, we should come together. I don't want to come together with Nazis. It's no fun. I'm sure someone said that on Twitter, too, so I apologize if I'm stealing that. Well, that's that, has, that was already happening on, on Sunday because, you know, it's – Okay, so Friday morning, I'm at the gym and I'm looking at the TV as I'm listening to podcasts and and the whole discussion is like there's going to be a nuclear war. Guam will not exist in, you know, 72 hours or whatever. There's this, you know, and that's you and that that was the thing. It was just like there's going to be a nuclear war. He's going to create a nuclear war. Then on Friday night, the event happens. So Saturday, it's people sort of responding to the event itself. But then by the time we get into Sunday, it's actually, well, Trump's response was insufficient. So it's kind of the, the, the spotlight is not on the event, but back on Trump's reaction. And then you start seeing people saying, you know, kind of seemingly the more nuanced takes or whatever. They're like, well, you know, um, basically it's like, the never Trump Republicans are the people who sort of ushered in this idea of both sides or whatever, and that they've created this climate where it has become acceptable to sort of say that uh, to equivocate these two things. And, and then you see a lot of people talking about false equivocation, yes. which, which is interesting always because it's like if you say just because you you kind of voice the sort of the take and its opposing take. You're not inherently saying they're the same. You're just kind of saying they both exist. This is like another thing that has changed in my lifetime, just how anger people have toward what they perceive to be attempts at objectivity, that it just they just hate it. And it, it's what, what, they, what they just want are people who are going to completely support their preexisting bias as news. So think- it's like not really – it's not surprising at all that this idea of fake news or the construction of news has happened. I mean, that's actually the logical step beyond the move away from objective reporting. That once you say like, well, you know, people, you know, people aren't robots, you know, uh, they can't be totally objective, which is true. Somebody will be like, we shouldn't try at all. Where in the past, it was always, well, the, as a journalist, your job is to try to recognize your biases and compensate for them. But that's not – people don't want that now. Well, it's not even actually, like – Well, actually, not to – well, actually, but that's that's a fairly recent idea of journalism, right? If you go back to like 
the revolutionary war times. The, the, and, and by the way, in a lot of other countries, journalism has always been super biased. Absolutely. When there, especially when there was situations where a community would have 18 newspapers right. or whatever. And it was like all special interest newspapers. But that idea, particularly moving through the 60s and 70s and 80s, I thought, well, I mean, here again, but this is my bias, I suppose. This is sort of the kind of the cultural conditions of which I was raised under and which I pursued journalism under. That that was part of the thing that drew me to the idea of being a reporter was I was like, this is something I can kind of do, I think. Like this is like my ability to attach my personal emotions from what I am sort of investigating. Well, not perfect. Like I can kind of do this, you know. And now it turns out that the opposite is what's desirable. So I I, – and that has – I think it's really going to change the kind of person who goes into media going forward. Speaking of careers, you, you grew up in North Dakota. You got a job in newspapers in, in Ohio. You wrote a book and got to New York. How do you think that career arc changes or doesn't change if you were starting out in 2017? Do you think you go I – mean, presumably you wouldn't go work for a local paper. I mean, I, guess, I don't know. They're still no. around. They still exist. Yeah. I. The honest answer is when I think of what I was like at 19 and 20, I think – if I'm being totally honest with myself, I would have been very aggressively drawn to the aspects of media I currently hate. <laughs> I, I know I would have. I mean, I know the, the, kind of, the kind of media writing that I find the most sort of off-putting and that drives me the craziest, I think I would have absolutely. Because, in fact, even some of the writing looks the way my writing used to look to me in high school, kind of. And when I was like, like writing for the high school paper and stuff like that. So I think not. I mean, probably the higher quality. I'm saying, but I'm saying the perspective, not not the. To tease that out, what is that? that what, what does that look like? The stuff that drives you nuts. Well, just uh, I, the idea that like, who can be the most outraged about this, or Takes. who can care the least about this, or mm-hmm. you know, or um, the idea that like uh, I, this person is in the culture, and as a consequence, they have no sort of right to anything beyond the fact that they're owned by the culture. So anything you write about this person is totally fine. So you'd be on that, Twitter, that, that you, or the equivalent of Twitter. Well. The, on Twitter, I mean, yeah, I guess Twitter is part of this. I'm even just saying more like now. I mean, is do we people still talk about the blogosphere, or is that no longer? Part I think of I think it, I think it denotes our age. But yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't that, know what you I don't, what, I don't know what I don't know what you replace it with. But yeah, well, so but so what is like, you know, like, okay, so I guess also like the idea of what's happening right now. What do most people think? I need to have a take or response that either contradicts what most people think or is just completely unexpected because the thing is the one thing people do not want to consume is sort of the obvious idea that this thing is good or this thing is bad unless you're going to say it's so good or so bad that it's transcendent. Right. So if I like something, I'm going to respond in a way that isn't just going to be like, I saw this movie. It's a good movie. It's like this movie's changing movies. Mm-hmm. The fact that I spent two hours in this movie makes me want to kill myself. And if I can't kill myself, I'm going to kill everybody else in the theater. Or whatever. You know, that's the mm-hmm. kind of thing. 
you know, I just when you're young, you're a real sort of emotional writer if you're a writer, I think. And and, and you sort of and because the thing is, that is what translates the fastest. And if I was a young person now, I would be incredibly attracted to the idea that when you're 22, you can be a national writer, which was impossible when I was 22. Uh, you know, it would be like it would, you're just. I I can't think of anybody when I was yeah, that Cameron, age. Cameron Crowe was the only one who did it, I guess. Right? He did. He did. I guess. But even so, it was like when people were reading a Cameron Crowe article he wrote when he was 22, they felt they were reading about the Allman Brothers. Right. They weren't like it's Cameron Crowe. You got to read this new Cameron. You know. The, right. I think the closest might have been Joel Stein. I don't know how old he is. I have no idea. But when I was living in Fargo. He was already kind of a famous person. He was in either Time or Newsweek or something, uh, and he seemed as young as you could be. You right. know, I don't or there know was like Jay McInerney. I mean, there were versions Del- of their yes. writing books. Yes, and yeah. well, in, 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 in publishing, that will happen because in publishing, there is real excitement over the very young, the very young more so than the young. <laughs> like right. it's, there's more excitement over a 21 year old novelist. Than a twenty four. But it's funny because you're describing, I think, correctly the idea of like when you're a young writer, like you you tend towards extremes. And now in sort of modern internet publishing, modern digital publishing, older people, people like myself, will encourage you to do that. They'll say, "Well, what's the point of having a, a, a sort of middle of the road opinion? Explain why something is great or something is terrible." It was just, eh, let's let's move on. And it makes sense because that is, by the way, what an audience responds to. And there's a million versions of eh, why I read those. But I understand your well, your, your here, disdain okay. and distaste. Well, for no, as well. it's not. I mean, disdain's a weird. It's just. For the longest time, the one thing nobody knew at any publication, be it newspapers or magazines, you know, was who's reading this or how many people are reading what? You know, you put the newspaper out, you put an issue of spin out, you know your circulation, okay, and that's it. You have no sense of what stories are getting you know, you, you can kind of go by letters to the editor, but not really. You don't really have a sense of what is being consumed. You do all these focus groups. I remember at the Beacon Journal, they would do focus groups where I think they would even make people wear these special glasses to see if they could, to see what parts of the newspaper yep, yep. they're looking at. You still know. do it. Okay. So, okay. Well, the, the thing is, though, because no one really knew, because nobody really knew what was being read, everybody was like, we got to use our best judgment. Okay. We have to sort of think, well, what is the most significant thing here or what should matter to people the most or what is the information they need as opposed to just information they want? Because we don't know. So we're just going to kind of have to trust our news judgment and all that. Well, now we actually know. Like we actually have the numbers and that has been hugely detrimental to the industry in terms of being a writer and being a journalist and all of these things because part of the reason – the financial situation of this has shifted so much is the recognition that a incredibly well-reported story that took two months to do about, you know, oh, like, you know, like what's happening in this, you know, uh, you know remote section of Syria gets about the same amount of attention as someone reading that story and going like, I think what's going on in Syria is bullshit. Right. So I either have this debate in my head or out loud all the time and I go on both sides of it because the counter to that, right, and the guys from Chartbeat, the people who actually put the dashboard up that shows what anyone's looking at on your site literally by the second by second and it's super depressing because they're not reading anything. They'll point out that you know the best read story maybe of last year or the year before was a very long Atlantic piece about uh, – I guess the Taliban or was it – no, about ISIS. Oh. 
And they'll Absolutely. say, no, no, they'll say, look, There's, if you if you write an amazing piece and you do a, and it's in, interesting and timely and well, and people will read it. You can't force someone to read something that's not interesting, and the internet's dispensed of that. Um, but just sort of shrugging and saying, look, the internet's making me write shit, isn't a good response. But I see the other way, which is I've seen a million people write, I've got to write shit because this is what the internet wants. I don't even know if you got to write shit. I wouldn't go that far. But I'm just saying that absolutely the biggest story is going to be the story where the most time and all that investment is. But what's different is the gap between that and responses to that story or stories that involve much less report. Right. It's like, there, it's, it, like there, that should be a chasm. Like there should be no relationship between the actual story that is done and the idea of people just sort of saying, well, what about this, though, or linking to that story and just saying, but I think like that is sort of, I think, what has uh, kind of flattened out. And it's hard to motivate people to put the investment in for that other kind of story, you know. But here again, this is what worries me about myself. If I was a younger person. I would have been much better at that second category than the first category. And I think that that's what I would have done. I would have been like, well, here, you know, I don't know. I, it's just a very kind of different job than it used to be, I think. In, in but your that's anthology, probably the case with, with every job. Yeah. In, in your anthology, you've got a handful of, of shorter pieces you did for Grantland. But, but everything else in there is, is fairly long. Uh, some of it's quite long. You're writing it in an era where, where you're fully aware that a lot of people are doing this short form stuff, fast twitch stuff. Do you push that out of your mind when you're writing? Do you have to do that? Or are you sort of aware that you're writing in a world that, that you know, where the news cycle went from North Korea and nuclear apocalypse to uh, riot in Charlottesville and presumably will be on a different news cycle by the time this podcast comes out in a couple of days? Do you try to be conscious of that or you just have to push it out of your head? Well, I'm lucky, too. I never really had to do that. I mean, I just – I came in – I was already – established enough where that, you know, uh, I, especially like a Grantland, I always thought I never have to be the first person to write about anything. Like I can almost be the last person. Mm -hmm. um, and that's obviously, a, a, I mean, just the whole reason this has happened to me is so built so much based on luck and chance and all these things that like I, I'm almost hesitant to express that I'm happy that it worked out because it somehow to me still seems weird that it happened. But I never felt pressure to do that, to what, to what you're describing. I, that never was part of my life. Very lucky. We said at the beginning you write about sports and music. And we haven't asked, I have not asked you a single sports question. So before we go, let me ask you about that. Football, there's the Malcolm Gladwell argument that says football is going to go away because it's brutal and no one uh, will want their kids to participate in it. And there's another argument that says there, people are watching less football because – we're living in a Twitter, Snapchat age. The third argument from from the TV folks and, and the NFL, it says football is as popular as ever and any discussion otherwise is is not valid. Do you want to pick a camp there? Well, the Gladwell stuff, you know, we got to see how that starts manifesting itself at like the high school level, okay? Because I do think that in some parts of the country, it's already the case, where – There'll be such social pressure not to allow your kid to play football that it will almost be like allowing your kid to do that will be seen as almost like an anti-intellectual move. But now in other parts of the country, that won't be the case at all. The question will be is can the college and pro games survive without the underpinnings of, of like youth football? 
And my suspicion is this, you know, it's like what it will probably do is it will it'll kind of reduce sort of the uh, sophistication of football players coming into college or coming into the NFL, but that will probably keep the game sort of at where it is now. I mean, because the game keeps getting more and more complicated because now you have these kids who instead of playing football in the fall and basketball in the winter and baseball in the spring, they just play football all year and they play seven on seven. You know, they all specialize. Right. Now, so you remove that. I mean, what what that does is that sort of makes college kids more pro-ready. A lot of quarterbacks who come into college now are probably more pro-ready than a guy in the 70s would have been during his fourth year in the NFL or whatever. Um, so maybe that will sort of back off and the game will kind of stay the same, um, in which case it will still – I mean at the pro level you can't – it will never seem to me – there will never be a situation where we'll say people, adults can't play football if they want to. Like it'll never be like we're going to ban this straight up. I don't right. think that will happen because we'd have to ban what? No, we still have boxing, bull riding, and you know, do we would we allow people get to go skydiving and all these things? Like, why would we allow? Like, why is that possible? The only reason that the football is different is because there's so many people who are involved with it as fans, kind of casually, that they suddenly feel complicit in this possibly unethical thing. So, do you think your um, kids and their peers, or or and, and by the way, kids who live in red states, will be watching football when they're when they're eighteen, twenty years old? Um. Well, in some pl- – I mean certainly in the Somewhere. American Southeast, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, you know, as long as football is on, it doesn't matter what state you're in. People are going to still be watching it. <laughs> people in New York are still going to watch football if it's on. And, you know, they can say that, that it's, you know, going by TV ratings or whatever that football is slightly less popular. Well, everything is less popular. So if everything on television is less popular – the thing that began at the apex of the mountain is still going to be the apex, and that's still live sports, particularly pro and college football. Yeah, I make that argument the other way around, which is just that, of course, if, if it's a different version of it, it's the same thing, which is because the, the NFL guys were saying, no, no, we, it was down because of, well, they weren't saying Tom Brady, they were saying uh, it was down because of Trump, it was down because of the election, which didn't make sense to me that people were, were spending time watching a debate instead of a football game. It just didn't sink. But it did make sense to think that if people were watching less TV in general, they would also watch less football and that it would be, wouldn't be immune. But no one wants to hear that. Or at least the well, NFL you know, don't people, want to hear people like, you know, I, I watch the red zone now when I can. Now, yeah. no, one's, no one has ever asked me what I'm watching on Sundays or ever. I, I still don't totally get – is that still how television ratings are deduced or is there a way now – it seems like they should be able to put a chip in everyone's cable box and tell us exactly what's watching and what's not being it's watched. It's automated but it's still a sample. So they're, yeah, they're not they're not scanning everyone, but it's still they're not they're no longer asking you to write down on pen and paper what you're watching. They're able to track more accurately what you're watching, but it's still they're still doing it from a sample. It doesn't you know it doesn't feel like football is a less popular, partially because it has become a more popular thing to anecdotally debate. Like is is the argument over whether or not football should exist still kind of good for football? Because people are still talking about it then. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it, – it, it seems like it's in the news more. Although I think, um, I think they've sort of pushed that debate down. I think it's really hard to have that debate with any any sort of rigor because it gets super uncomfortable because you talk about people blowing their heads off or, or, or being permanently crippled or, you know, if you, if you see what Jim McMahon looks like today and you're our age, it makes you feel really not great. Yeah, I mean it also depends on who you're talking to. I mean I think that there are – the conversations about the problems with football, the debate over that, 
there's sort of the public debate that we see on Slate or whatever case may be where people are talking about it. Um, And that's uh, one kind of argument. And then you have another kind of argument among people who don't really care at all and weren't really interested in football. And the only thing they know about football now or really or or have the investment they have is sort of the recognition that you you can die from it. But then there's this other debate among the dangers of football between people who love football. And that one is hidden because it's even if if you know if if you're one of these people and, and you and you know say you put me on say I got thrown onto one of these talking head shows uh-huh. okay like like suddenly I'm on first take or whatever or, you know, <laughs> and this question comes up uh-huh. okay well I'm certainly going to think of myself as like well I'm in public now so I'm going to try to detach myself from basically any kind of emotional feeling I have about this and sort of talk about it almost like I'm discussing, you know, like a, some kind of business strategy or whatever the case may be or, or you know. But then if I'm talking with the people I know who really love football, it is a different kind of conversation where we're still talking about the same things. But it leads me to believe that the interest in the game is maybe a little deeper and more profound than the critics of football and its dangers realize. Yeah, I just I don't think the critics are that loud, frankly. I think I think there's Malcolm and a few other people, and most everybody wants to watch football when they can. Maybe they just watch a little bit less of it. But, but that doesn't make any sense. Watch less of it. That you know. It's no, like, they're, or, they're, they're they're here. The more the more articulate way of saying it is they're watching a lot of other stuff. So football is one of the things they're watching, but it's competing for their time with lots of other things like Twitter or their phone or Twitter on their phone. So maybe they're just going to spend X amount. That's actually the more sophisticated argument for the NFL. They'll say the number of people watching football is as great as it's ever been. They're watching slightly less. Our reach is still good is is their version of putting it. Yeah, I mean the other thing the NFL is doing is it seems as though they're hiring every expert in the world of CTE stuff. Like if you if you know a lot about CTE, the NFL is going to hire you, and that's a very smart philosophy because they're just going to basically employ every person who understands this after a while, and they'll really be able to sort of control the discussion. I feel like we can continue this football discussion for a while. It would have to be over a beer, and I would get less articulate as we go, so I'm going to cut my losses. But Chuck, you were great. I want to do this forever. I'm glad we did it. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks to you guys for listening. If you like listening to this, you know where to find more of it. Um, I was just talking to my producer, Beth. She says you guys are, are particularly sophisticated. You tend to listen to it on lots of different platforms, um, which means you know you can get it through Apple Podcast and Spotify, Google Play, Overcast. You guys like Overcast. We don't care where you listen to it as long as you listen. Uh, we do ask that you share us on whatever social media or non-social media platform you choose. We love our sponsors who make this free and available to you guys. TransferWise, Mac Weldon. The Art of Shaving, and Amazon Web Services. Thanks to Digital Media, who sells those ads. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell, Eric Johnson, my editor, Chris Basil. This is Recode Media. That's been Chuck Klosterman. You guys are great. Thanks again, Chuck. Hey, Recode Media listeners. This is Todd Vanderwerf. I'm here with a listening recommendation for you. It's my podcast. I think you're interesting. Each week, I talk to the most entertaining people shaping arts and entertainment culture, Names you know and some you might not know but should get to know. Uh, Like Errol Morris, he's one of the greatest directors ever. He's made some of the best documentaries ever. We recently talked to him. Or David Lowry, who's behind the indie smash, A Ghost Story. You can find I Think You're Interesting on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.